Um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, we come to you now asking that your wisdom, your power, your mercy and your grace might be made known in our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that that even now we would our hearts would be stirred even before we begin to look deeply into your word so that we can truly say blessed be the name of the Lord so that we can truly say it is well with my soul God we come to you expectantly looking forward to the way in which you will speak to us through your word. God, I pray that we receive it. I pray that we might recognize how marvelous your grace is through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it might cause us to worship every day, regardless of our situations. God, I pray that that would be our hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're jumping back into our study of of Micah, and we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 4 today. Um, But I want to start out our time talking to you about my friend Tom. As long as I live, I will never forget a statement that he made. He said... God has a right to do with me whatever He pleases. And I love Him for it. He said this as He choked back tears of both joy and pain, as He is suffering, but yet hoping, yet longing with the confidence and a determination that comes only from the Lord. And you know, these, these words have strengthened me and comforted me. <clears throat> More than Tom will ever know. It's funny. I met Tom my first day at uh, Southern Seminary. I was in uh, I was in Doctor Pennington's elementary Greek class, and I'm sitting in there, and this class is just filled with young, idealistic big-headed, small-hearted, egotistical Bible college students who want to just conquer the world. And God love them. I pray that they do, you know. But it was just filled with these guys. And so I, the the strapping 27-year-old with, you know, a few years of ministry experience under my belt, you know, I, I just thought this was a big thing. You know, like, look at me. I've got, I felt like the old man. I was almost the old man. There was one man that was much older than me, much, much older than me, old enough to be my father older than me, and that was Tom. But Tom's age wasn't the only thing that made him stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, Tom also had this Amish beard, you know? It's like, who wears that, you know? And he wore flannel, and he had this sort of preachy command to his voice that, I don't know, it's something that... Like, if you listen to him, you would think that's probably how Charles Spurgeon, the famous English pastor, spoke. And everything that came out of this man's mouth seemed to be absolutely profound. I was dumbfounded. I was intrigued by Tom. I was like, why the heck is this man here? And so obviously I wanted to get to know him. 
as I got to talking to Tom and I started learning about his life, I realized that Tom had served for two decades, almost two decades, as an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church. That's John Piper's church, okay? This, you don't get to become an elder at John Piper's church unless you are a pastor, unless you know the word, unless you are a theologian. And not only was Tom formerly an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church, but he was also a very successful businessman. He was he worked for this technological corporation. He made tons of money. He had like 6,000 people underneath him. I mean, a huge deal. I mean, Tom was extremely successful. And so it, it always wondered... I always wondered what Tom was thinking as he sat in this class with a bunch of whippersnappers as we opened our foolish little mouths and tried to say something smart, you know? But he never scoffed. Yeah, he was always really patient. And in fact, Tom regularly mentored guys like me. Tom prayed with and for us. Like, I was in this accountability group of a bunch of young guys, and Tom would come, and he's like, I just want to pray with you all. I mean, Tom served. That's the kind of guy... He was, is. Before seminary, um, his his Tom's business had actually led him to New England. He he was living in Minneapolis, and then he was transferred to New England, so he moved there. Um, and he was shocked by the state of the church, or I should say, the lack thereof. And though he had this life of wealth of possessions, of comfort and ease, his soul would not rest. He was compelled to do something about it. And so he packed up his family and he moved to Louisville to go to seminary. Not because he needed to, but because he thought the best way that he could serve those people was by having an MDiv and a PhD. Because they thought a lot about education and they didn't want to hear from anybody unless they had a few letters behind their name. And so he went to serve. Again, Tom's character was shining through. But about two years into his studies, into his MDiv studies, Tom was struck by this strange, debilitating disease. Tom, he he started experiencing, what started as extreme back pain, eventually spread to where his body had spasms. He had this inability to focus. He was in, in tremendous pain all the time. And he could barely use his arms and legs. His life was put virtually on hold because he could not continue in his studies. He could barely get out of his house. I mean, he could barely make it to church on Sundays. Because, and when he did, he was often in a wheelchair. <coughs> but occasionally, Tom would get an opportunity to preach and teach at, at Clifton, our home church, where he would have been an elder had this situation not happened to him. And when he would make his way up to the front, because people would always ask, he would tell them how he was doing, how he was getting along, and then he would say those words. God has a right to do with me whatever he pleases. And I love him for it. You know, we may be asking ourselves, why would God allow this to happen to such a competent and capable pastor? Couldn't God use him more effectively as a church planter or as a pastor somewhere? I mean, God, if God has chosen Tom and God has given him this desire to go out and make his name known, why doesn't he do it? Why is Tom suffering like this? Why isn't Tom allowed to serve? Well, friends, God doesn't build his kingdom in the same way that we would. 
His plans are not our plans. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't use the same means or the same materials that we would. And in fact, God's ways often include the suffering of His people. Yet we can rest assured of this, that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God has designed it so that adversity leads to His glory and for the good of His people. So today, as we look at Micah 4, we'll see that God offers a blessed promise of His future kingdom. But this kingdom will come through suffering. But yet His promise and His plan result in hope for those who trust in Him. God's promise, though fulfilled through trial, will result in abundant blessing. So with that, let's go ahead and read Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall be judged between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of their God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, and I will gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron, I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat into pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. First, God gives us this promise of His future kingdom. Now we've seen in the first three chapters that because of the sin of His people, God declared that His city, Zion, the city of God, a symbol of His dwelling with man, would be leveled. It's going to be plowed as a field. It's going to be a heap of ruins and become a wooded height. 
God would have the mountain of the house of the Lord destroyed because the people sought after idols. They sought after wealth and possessions. They abused the authority that God had given them. And they worshipped, they placed their hope in the symbol of God's blessing rather than in God Himself. But here in verse 1, we see a change occurring. We see something different happening. Now, God promises that He will reestablish His mountain in the latter days. This mountain of the house of the Lord, it represents God's revelation of Himself to man. It's a symbol of His divine presence, of His protection, of His guidance, of His rulership. It's, it's meant to represent a gateway to heaven and the place where people come to worship God. And as Caleb has already alluded, he's talking about Christ. And though, and though there, um, and though their sin would result in in this removal, this it's resulting in this physical representation of their separation from God and their inability to worship Him. God promises that He would one day restore it. He would one day reestablish Himself, His divine presence among them. And not only that, but it will be exalted. It will be lifted up above all other mountains, above all high hills. And what he's referring to here is that it will be established above every idol, above every high place of worship, above every other false religion. But this will happen in the latter days. It's going to happen in the future. A time in which God's divine presence is established here on earth. And in such a way that God's victory over every false thing will be seen, and as it says in verse 1, exalted on the earth. And like Caleb said, you know, we have the benefit of having the scripture. We have the benefit of having the entire Bible to be able to see God's timeline, his story of his unfolding plan to redeem his people. And so we can look at this and we can see that this Micah is actually speaking of the coming of Christ. The coming of the Messiah was the most important event. It is and was the most important event in all of history. Christ's coming 2,000 years ago was the beginning of this great last days of history. Let's look at a couple of texts just to prove it. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or Galatians 4.4 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. 1 Peter 1.20 He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. And Acts 2.16 says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it has come to pass in the last days, says God. Peter saying this because he understands that passages like Isaiah 2.2 and Micah 4.1 and other passages that speak of the last days... <clears throat> They've been, these prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. This was actually the end times for that Old Testament or that Old Covenant administration. It was a time when God would build His church by the hands of His Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But uh, we, don't, we don't even need to look throughout the Bible 
to get proof of this. I mean, Micah provides ample proof of what he means when he speaks of the latter days within his text. Micah says in verse 1 and 2 that in the latter days, people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Again, we know that that people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be drawn to God's divine presence. They will say, come, let us go to God. And they will, they will stop streaming to their, their false idols, to those false places of worship, but, and they will flow to worship the Lord. But we know, again, when we look at the, Old, uh, at the New Testament, that this doesn't happen until after Christ's death and resurrection. This doesn't actually happen until, you know, Christ makes it clear that, that all people might come to him, as he instructs the church to do so. I mean, yeah, there were a few proselytes along the way, but full acceptance wasn't given um, for the Gentiles to become the people of God until after Christ had been raised. In addition, the Gentiles say, Come, let us go to God, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. It's not that they'll go and they'll learn from priests, that they'll learn from experts in the law or anything of the like, but that they will learn from God himself. This is actually, uh, Micah is is speaking much along the same way that that Jeremiah speaks when he talks about the new covenant, that God will uh, write his law in the people's hearts and they shall be his people and and he will be their God. And again, this is in the New Testament. We see that, that this is a prophecy that, that will be enacted through the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, when Christ stood there in the Last Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Or um, the writer of Hebrews affirmed that, that it was fulfilled in and mediated by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came to instruct and to teach God's people to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and to follow him. So if you're going to receive instruction from the Lord and you're going to walk in God's paths, you do it through Christ. But not only will Gentiles from every nation be drawn to the Lord, the word of the Lord is also going to go out. You see that in verse 2? It says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's people are actually going to go on mission for God. They will not only shine as lights and be a means of instruction for those who come to them, they're also going to go out. They're going to take the word to the nations. And again, this is something biblically we don't see happening until Acts 8. Until it was persecution that caused the the church of Jerusalem to spread out. And then as a result, the word of the Lord went on to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So here again, Micah is looking forward to the coming of Christ. But God's future kingdom is not only a place of instruction, it's also a place of peace. In verse 3, God will judge between many peoples. He will decide for strong nations far away. God is going to arbitrate peace among nations. A peacemaker so convincing that they're actually going to take their swords and beat them into plowshares. That they're going to take their their sword or their their spears and, and turn them into pruning hooks. No longer will they lift their swords against one another in war. No longer will they even learn or make war. I mean, that's the peace, the kind of peace that God is going to bring to the nations. Instead, ironically, they're actually going to go back to fulfilling the task that God gave to Adam in the garden. 
that they were to to tend the garden. They were to seek God-given prosperity as they served as agrarians, actually, ironically enough. And this is why their swords are going into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They will have that same confidence that Adam and Eve had before they fell into sin. They won't be afraid that somebody's going to make war against them. I mean, this is, this is a small picture of a return to the Garden of Eden. Now, we don't have to look too hard in our world to see that this is not a complete reality, is it? I mean, though many times and in many ways, Christ's followers have been peacekeepers, and all of us who walk in Christ are to, as much as is humanly possible, as much as the Spirit leads us, we're to be peacemakers. But in reality, we look around and we see war everywhere. There is still destruction. There is still fear. The latter days, they haven't been fully consummated. And this is what theologians call already, not yet, or the big word, inaugurated eschatology. That, that there's a period between Christ's first coming and the second coming in which the latter days broke forth, but they won't find their complete fulfillment until Christ comes again, until he returns. So, again, we see how this is breaking forth. You know, it, Mike is kind of looking at this entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming as one point in history, but we have the perspective of seeing it as two different time periods. And this is breaking forth. This is continuing to expand. And this already not yet is everywhere in the New Testament. I'll just uh, mention one example. You know, Paul talks in Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has already appeared, already past tense, bringing salvation for all peoples, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right here and right now. Waiting. Future. For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And so you see in this text that there's this already not yet at work. God's grace has already been given. It, it, it affects us. It, it strengthens us. It empowers us to live godly lives in the present age as we wait for that future coming of Christ in which our salvation will be fully made known. So this is the way that the Bible works. So this peace, again, this peace, it's, it's, it's brought forth, it's come forth in Christ but it hasn't had its full effect and won't until Christ ultimately returns. But we can take real confidence in this. We can have the same confidence that Paul had in Titus, and that's the same confidence that we see Micah saying in, in verse 4, where he says, For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. I mean, Micah says this, and he's saying, you know, this is as good as done. This is a sure thing. You can take confidence in that. Therefore, he says that in the present, in verse 5, all peoples walk in the name of, their, of its God, but we are to walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Because God has made this promise of a future kingdom, in which He's drawing people to Himself, in which we go on mission for God, in which you know, He's going to restore the mountain of the Lord and, and bring a remnant into Himself, we take hope, and that affects the way that we live in the present. And so I've got to ask you, is this your hope? Is this ultimately what you're longing for? Does the 
the promise that God made of His future kingdom affect you today? Does it change the way that you live? Does it change the way that you do things? Do you find yourself believing this and participating in God's unfolding mission? Do you find yourself zealous to share this hope that you have? Or are they just words on a page? God's point in giving us these sweet and precious promises is so that it would motivate us today to be those who proclaim the truth, to be those who seek and promote peace, to be those who walk humbly and faithfully with our God. They're to cause us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. So that we might long for the day, as we just sung, where our faith shall be made sight. But until then, it's not always going to be sandy beaches and golden shores. God's purpose to redeem the people of His kingdom will go forth. Second, even if He necessarily afflicts us. In verse 6, God uh, gives a description of the remnant. He says that in that day, in the day in which He reestablishes the mountain of the house of the Lord, He will assemble His people. He will gather His remnant, the remains of those who call themselves the people of God. And He describes them as lame, as those who are limp, as those who are crippled. God says that they have actually been driven away from His presence and from His blessing. They had been cast off. They had been thrown out. They had been banished. These were the people that God would reestablish His kingdom with. These are the people that God would create a strong nation with. But I want to draw your attention to verse 6. Let's look at it here. The reason why they're lame the reason why they've been driven out, the reason why they've been cast out and afflicted, he says, because he's done it. He says, and those whom I have afflicted. It was God that made them lame. It was God that banished them. It was God that drove them away from his presence, away from his blessing. God doesn't excuse himself and he doesn't blame it on something else. God stands here and he takes full responsibility. He says, the reason why you have suffered this affliction is because I have done it. I've done it. But friends, I want you to think about something. God did it for a good reason. God did it so that there would be a remnant. God does it so that He can bless. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Pursuit of Man, a book that I highly recommend, The experience of men who walked with God in olden times agreed to teach that the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he, first, he has first conquered him. The degree of blessing enjoyed by any man will correspond exactly with the completeness of God's victory over him. He adds a few pages later that God rescues us by breaking us, by shattering our strength, and by wiping out our resistance. God cannot bless a man until he has hurt him deeply. These are heavy words. But if we look biblically, we see that this is consistently the pattern. I mean, think about Jacob 
In Genesis 32, Jacob, after striving really against God his entire life, finally recognizes his need to receive the blessing of the Lord. And so he wrestles with God or a a physical manifestation of God all night long throughout the night. And he continues to cling and cling to God. And he begs that God bless him because he knows how much he needs it. He knows he needs it. But the sun begins to rise. And so God reaches down and just touches his hip with the tip of his finger. And, and Jacob is made limp. He's lame now. He can't, he'll never use that hip the same. It's, it did break it, but it like knocked it out of joint. It, it, it's unfixable. But God did that. He afflicted Jacob in that way for two reasons. The first one, is that had the sun actually rose and had Jacob beheld the face of God, he would have been destroyed. And second, he did it so that he could bless him. God afflicted Jacob so that he wouldn't die and so so that Jacob might actually receive the blessing of God that he had been begging for. I mean, this is we see this elsewhere, like Paul. Paul was given the thorn in his flesh so that he would be humble and not exalt himself. I mean, even Jesus, Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus learned obedience and experienced a perfecting maturity through suffering. Nobody suffered like the Son of God. And the Bible is clear that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer. They will. And here Micah says that we see God promised the children of Jacob that they will be afflicted. They're going to go into exile. And fittingly, the remnant will come out lame, just like their forefather. If they were to indeed receive that blessing, that blessed promise that comes from verses 1 through 5, they need to embrace the suffering that comes through verse 6. To save his people, he must actually afflict them. You know, another biblical example, Psalm 118. This is a great psalm. It talks about how God continues to deliver the psalmist from his enemies. It speaks praise and adulation and thanksgiving all the way throughout it, except seemingly for one verse, verse 18. I mean, he's going to talking about praising God, praising God and doing all these things. And look what all God has done. And God has blessed me. God has delivered me. And then he says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then right back to praise. He continues right on. And you might think, that that doesn't fit. But it does. It's consistent with the theme of the entire psalm. He's actually praising God for his severe discipline because it has not led him over to death. God disciplined him so that he could save him. God disciplined him severely so that he could have a small glimpse of what he actually deserved, what his sins actually deserved, and how deeply he needed deliverance, but also of how secure he was in God. God disciplined severely out of love, out of a desire to restore his people. I mean, think about this. You go to your doctor, you find out that you have cancer. And the doctor tells you, we're going to have to perform surgery. 
It's going to be a bad surgery. And after that, we're going to have to subject you to a barrage of chemo treatments and medications. You're going to experience tremendous pain. You're going to lose a lot of mobility. You're going to be sick a lot. You're going to be weak. All your hair is going to fall out. And your life from this moment forward will never be the same. It's going to completely change. You will not go back to being who you were before you found out you had cancer. Is that doctor being cruel and sadistic because he subjected you to surgery, to chemo, to medications? Because he told you the truth? No. He's doing it out of concern for you. He's doing it to save you. And this is exactly what God is doing. When God says, you know, I'm going to have to discipline you severely. I'm going to have to make you lame. I'm going to have to afflict you. He's not doing it because he's a cruel God who hates his people and wants to exalt in himself, in his own sovereignty, his authority, and his power. No, he's doing it because that's what it takes to save us. That's what it takes to redeem us, to provide a remnant. The Bible is clear. God is gracious and kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Hebrews 12.6 tells us that God disciplines those whom He loves. He disciplines those whom He loves. There's a distinction between discipline and condemnation. Between discipline and ultimate everlasting judgment. And we need to think about something for a minute. Do you realize that God doesn't owe you anything? You, you've sinned against God. Each one of us, every single one of us in this room, have sinned against God. And sin is not something that's arbitrary, you know, apart from God. It's active rebellion against God. It's sinning against Him in thought and word and deed. It's saying something untrue about God. It's an affront, a personal affront to His character. And God's goodness... God's holiness, His righteousness, and His love demand that He punish sin. I mean, we think about God as love, but do you realize that if, if God was not a just God, He would not be a loving God? Do you ever think about that? I mean, if somebody premeditates to murder your loved one, and they do it, we have this natural... Uh, desire for justice. And if justice is not upheld, if, if God just looks at that and says, whatever, that's not loving. That's not loving you. That's not loving the person who, who this crime was committed against. No, I mean, if God's going to be loving, He has to be just. It has to happen that way. The reality is we've made ourselves God's enemy. We've, put, we've placed ourselves willingly under the just wrath of God. And He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a thing. I mean, we could just be like the, the Egyptians, or the Philistines, or the Assyrians, or the Babylonians. I mean, they, they received no promise that they would have a remnant. They received no promise of deliverance or redemption. And hey, the people of Israel were every bit as bad as they were. We were every bit as bad as they were. Yet they received no promise. But God chose His people, His particular people, and offered them that promise. 
So then it's actually a kindness to receive discipline, to receive warning, to be to to receive the affliction of the Lord. It it changes everything. Because we realize we don't deserve it. But he offers it as a means to restore us to himself. It gives us an opportunity to repent. Um, Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And the inference from that, So, be zealous and repent. Then that's the point. God disciplines us to bring us to repentance. So we might recognize our rebellion against Him, to turn from it, and to seek after Him in complete dependence. You know, we've got this insane tendency to think our sin is really not that bad. We just think it's a minor deal. But when you realize that this is actually a personal affront, a violation of God's character, it changes things. And, but affliction or severe discipline actually gives us a small taste, a small taste of how bad we really are how sinful we really are and how desperately, how much we need a Savior. How much we, we need salvation. And it causes us to grow in our dependence upon God. We realize we can't do it ourselves, so we fall on our knees before Him and we long for the day when there will be no more pain or sorrow. We will trust in those promises of God's future kingdom. And the end result is that we exalt in our rightful king. And that's exactly what God says he'll do in verses 7 through 8. When he establishes his kingdom and restores that lame remnant, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, and this is a reference to a shepherd king, which we're going to talk more about next week. To you, to this king, it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. God will take his place as rightful ruler over the hearts of his people and establish his king to reign over them. And again, we're going to look a little bit more about who that is next week in in Micah chapter 5. But here's the reality, guys. When it comes to faith, when it comes to salvation, we, we want the blessings that come from God, but we don't want God himself. You know, we might, we might recognize our sin and pray that Christ's sacrifice uh, of His body and blood might be a substitute for our, our sins. You know, we might profess that, that, yeah, Jesus died on our behalf and that He was raised to give us the newness of life. Um, but it's not enough for us to just call Him Savior, to try to gain the benefits of salvation and not call Him Lord. That's a denial of who He is. That's saying, you know what, we, I want your benefits, but I still hate you. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. That's not what God calls for. Failing to submit to His authority is failure to recognize who He is. And there's no salvation apart from submission to His authority. But when we do... When we recognize this authority, we can embrace afflictions and say like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so believing in God's promise of His future kingdom, though He necessarily afflicts us, second, gives us hope 
through present trial. Our third gives us hope through present trials. In verses 9 and 10, we see this promise of exile. And Micah actually uses rhetorical questions to convey the bad news. He says, don't be surprised when you cry aloud. Don't wonder why you have no king. Don't question in that day whether or not God has perished or why you are in such pain. The Lord has brought this upon you. And then in verse 10, he tells them how it's going to happen. He says, first, you will go out from the city into the open land. And there, your captors will come and they will take you away. And he says this as the Assyrians have surrounded Jerusalem. Okay? Their enemies surround them on every side. And the ironic thing is, he said, hey, guess what? Your captors are not going to be the Assyrians. They're not the ones that are laying siege to you. It's actually going to be the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones that are going to come and take you away. And this prophecy was fulfilled over a hundred years later in 586 A.D. when King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians destroys Jerusalem and returns with the Israelites as his captives. But even in that prophecy of exile, God is so kind to give us a promise of hope. He says, There in Babylon you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. And God keeps His promise. We find that 70 years later, 70 years after they've been exiled, God would free the Israelites from the Babylonian captivity. So God gives them an indication of this future hardship. But there's even a more immediate trial that they need hope, that they need to persevere in. Verse 11 says that many nations are assembled against them. Micah, again, is saying this as Assyria and its vassal nations, nations that are subjected to it, have rallied around and laid siege on Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, and his army are flinging threats and taunts against Israel, saying, let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. In 2 Kings 18-19, through 19, we're given this account of the, the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem. Sennacherib is taunting King Hezekiah and, and, and uh, he's threatening his people. And there's, they're absolutely surrounded. And guys, there's no hope. I, I, I can't convey it enough. This, they were goners. They had this puny little army against this major superpower and all the vassal nations that were just had surrounded them on every side. It was a hopeless situation. But God says to them in verse 12, They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They, the Assyrians. They do not understand His plan. That He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Here God is promising that He has a plan to destroy the Assyrians. And He's admonishing His people to trust in Him. Well, Hezekiah, we know if we continue to read in 2 Kings, he does place his trust in the Lord. And he leads his people to hope in God. God promised that the Assyrians would leave and that Sennacherib would actually fall on his own sword in his own land. And this this was God's plan and that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we read in, in, in 2 Kings that, that God sent an angel into the camp of the Assyrians and destroyed 185,000 of his soldiers. And the, the loss was so devastating that they returned home. They returned back to Assyria. And as Sennacherib 
entered a place of worship, worshiping one of the Assyrian false gods, his sons took his sword and struck him with it. He fell on his own sword. God kept his promise. He saved his people. And the the people didn't actually lift a finger to it. And we look at that, we see this is a perfect situation in which the opposition seemed overwhelming. There seemed no hope. But God offered a promise. The people needed to believe. And though the afflictions were tremendous, God strengthened them. And their faith, their resolve was all the greater because of what God has done. God used that event for His glory and the good of His people. So though each of us may be facing various trials, God might necessarily be afflicting us, but it's for our good. And God provides us much to take confidence in here. There's much to hope in. That despite our present hardships, we have an optimistic outlook. We can have this this Pollyanna point of view. And I just want to kind of sum up what they are. God will reestablish His mountain. God will set up His kingly rule. God will instruct His people. They will go on mission with Him. God will bring peace and everlasting prosperity. God will reassemble the lame remnant. He will restore His people. He will be, uh, they will be rescued. They will be redeemed. God has a plan for His enemies that they do not know, and He will gain victory over them. And God will make you strong. If you are His child, He will not let you fall. This present trial, whatever it may be, will not defeat you. These are all things that God has done or has promised to you in this passage. And that ought to give us hope. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we have a part to play in this. If you look at verse 13, God says to His true people, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now, we, we can know that this is an exhortation for God's true people and not to the immediate context because, like I said, Israel never lifted a finger against the Assyrians. They, they didn't do anything to free themselves from the Babylonian captivity. So God is not just speaking to the people of, that, of Micah's present day. He's speaking to His people eternal. And He's saying to them, Arise and thresh. This is a future fulfillment in which God promises to supernaturally strengthen His people, to cause them to stand up from their cowering positions and tread down their enemies, enemies of every nation, of every power, and to devote their spoils to God. Though they've been wounded, though they've been afflicted, they're there cowering in fear because the situation may seem hopeless from a human perspective, God calls His people and empowers them to advance His kingdom. I mean, we see this partially fulfilled in Matthew 16, 18-19, when Jesus tells Peter that on this rock, the rock of His profession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will lay an assault 
on the gates of hell. And Christ will give the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven as they go out and they thresh many people. And we see this ultimately, it's ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 20 through 22, when God's enemies are finally fully defeated and God's everlasting kingdom is consummated forever. So here, God is telling each of us who are true believers in Jesus Christ to arise and thresh. Though the enemy and the task seems too much to bear, we're to get up from our cowering position. We're to arise. And though God necessarily afflicts us, though you are now lame, you are to go out into God's field with your crutch in one hand and your sickle in the other. And you are to sow God's Word. You are to reap His harvest, to advance His kingdom, and to devote that gain to God. The result of our labor, though definitely for our good, is ultimately for the glory of God. He's the King. He's the Lord. And to the victor goes the spoils. And Micah calls him in verse 13, the Lord of the whole earth. The reality is he owns it all. It all belongs to him. That there is nothing outside of his rule and rights as sovereign Lord. Not heavens, not earth, not principalities, not power, not our prosperity, not our pain, not you, and not me. Nothing is outside of God's rule. He's the Lord of. He's the ruler of. He's the master of. He's the owner of the whole earth and all that it contains. And so, from Him and through Him and to Him belong all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So let us hope in Him. Let's hope in Him. You know, I began talking about my friend Tom, and that's, gonna, that's how I'm going to conclude. Tom doesn't ultimately know why God has decided to afflict him with this condition. Tom doesn't profess to know the plans or the thoughts of the Lord. But Tom knows this. God loves him. And he loves God. And God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so Tom longs for that future kingdom. Tom embraces his afflictions. And Tom hopes in God through his present trials. But he has noticed benefits. He definitely has. God has used Tom to teach many believers and future pastors, such as myself, about what it looks like to suffer to the glory of God. I can think about Tom's life, and I'm given a present personal experience of what it must have been for Job to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've seen Tom grow in his dependence upon and love for the Lord, and I can only give God credit for that. To see joy in the midst of suffering? Who's going to buy that apart from the work of the Lord? So Tom has been a display of 1 Peter 1, 6-7 to me. 
that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And finally, Tom has a son named TJ, or JT, who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. And before, when Tom's life was great, JT could say, yeah, why wouldn't you worship God? Look at all he's, you know, given you. Sounds like Satan said to, to God in Job 1, of like, when he said, does Job fear you for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan said that of, to God of Job. And here, with Tom's situation, TJ might have been able to say that before. Well, yeah, if you didn't have all this stuff, I mean, where would your faith be? But now TJ can't make that excuse as he sees his father suffer. As he sees his father in such pain, yet still always rejoicing, he realizes that faith in Jesus Christ is not some blind intellectual assent. That it's not just a means of gaining something from a a spiritual deity, right? That, that we don't come to Him just so that God will give us stuff. He realizes that there's a real and present power. And though JT has not brought himself to the place of faith, Tom stands as a witness, as a testament to the validity and truthfulness of Christianity, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so, though he suffers, he does not suffer in vain. God has a purpose behind his affliction. God's promise of a future kingdom, though he necessarily afflicts us, gives us hope through present trials. So like Tom, I say this, God has a right to do with you whatever he pleases. The question is, will you love him for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are shocked uh, by your love for us. Lord, when we look at our lives, we look at suffering, we often think that this is a reason to blame you rather than seeing that this is the discipline we need so that we might be saved, so that we might be restored to you. So, Lord, we pray that rather than bemoan our situation, rather than complain or, or uh, blame you for the hardships that we have endured, we pray that we will say, God, I am content with whatever you give. You have a right to do with me whatever you please. I love you for it. May we remember in the midst of our sufferings and afflictions that, that you are good, that you are holy, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you continue time and again to shower gifts upon your people. 
May that give us hope in the present trials. May that cause us to long for heaven. May that cause us to see our need for Christ and and desire to run to Him. To find our satisfaction in that which truly can satisfy. Jesus Christ alone. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this song, we will truly mean the words that it is well with our soul. Whatever our lot, you have taught us to say that. So Lord, we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.